Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back. We are talking with Austin Parr about ice fishing. Good morning again, Austin. Thanks once again for having me, Terry. I want to make a couple comments on the fishing line and some of the things I see. And Now, I'm fortunate I've been in the industry a long time. I have a number of ice fishing rods. I probably, when I went up Thursday, had eight or nine ice fishing rods in the back of my truck. I took three out on the ice with me. And one of the things you mentioned is being able to feel and make a good presentation. Now, I used to recommend, and I still do for a lot of new anglers, to just go ahead and put some fresh monofilament, maybe in the four-pound range for most of the trout fishing in Colorado. But once that line starts developing coils and you can't get out, if your lure doesn't straighten out those coils, you're never going to get any sensitivity and you're not going to have any, and you're not going to make good presentations because you're not going to be moving, moving the presentation the way you think you are when those coils are unwinding. So I do use quite a bit of the super lines. I tend to use the the extruded super lines like Fireline and Nanofill rather than a braided line. And I do use yeah. some some fluorocarbon. I also have a couple reels. You know, one of the things on spinning reels, I've never liked the way fluorocarbon casts. But you don't have to worry about that when you're ice fishing. I will put fluorocarbon on a reel, but I'll usually go down maybe one less brake strength. First of all, fluorocarbon tends to be a little tougher, a little more abrasion resistance, but it's never quite as supple as mono. And the fish really get to look at your presentation, and it's almost more important how natural it looks than it even is the size of the line, I think. I completely agree, and and that fluorocarbon, with the fact that it refracts light in the same way that water does, disappears much better than certainly a superline, but then even monofilament. So if you're using a superline, a fluorocarbon leader, I still feel like it's critical, but a fluorocarbon definitely, as you mentioned, is going to be better than mono uh, for most ice fishing applications, especially on lakes that are seeing a lot of pressure, even more so than normal this year. Now, another thing, along with the line you choose, whether it's super line or mono or fluorocarbon, people overlook the action of the rod. And I want you to talk to us a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit my feeling. And I've designed some ice rods for a couple of companies. But the number one thing, I need a rod that has sensitivity for the particular presentation. So I have to think about what am I fishing for, what size lures am, am I going to be using. I need a little bit of presentation. I need a little give in that rod because I need, but then I need that rod to be able to give up a little bit to protect that line and that initial run before your drag kicks in because I'm usually fishing with lighter lines. But then I need some backbone. So I really have to consider the presentations i'm making with that rod how do you approach picking your fishing rods for ice fishing yeah as you mentioned there there's not really a one rod that fits all type presentation whether you're in the open water fly fishing ice fishing or anything so it all is dependent upon what i'm doing most of my trout fishing applications where i'm fishing with small jigs or flies i like to have something that's about a 30 inch rod maybe a little bit a little bit less but having a spring bobber on that end of that rod is really critical for me. So having that, what that spring bobber is, it's an extension off the tip of your rod that you can thread your line through and see a light bite. 
Uh, an actual slip bomber can work too, but I don't like it as much if I'm actually jigging. But I personally prefer a medium light for most applications, but each rod manufacturer does have a little bit different feel. So having something, as you mentioned, with a nice fast tip on it, but a little bit softer through the midsection, so it will protect that lighter line. Uh, but then if I'm changing my presentation and trying to fish a spoon for a walleye or, or a spoon for a trout even, I'll bump that up a little bit, maybe a 32-inch at a medium power. And still that fast action has that soft tip to feel the bite with the backbone in the rear end. And then lake trout's going to be even different. So shifting to a heavy or a medium heavy, but I feel like a lot of people when you're lake trout fishing have too heavy of a rod throughout the entire rod and don't have that soft tip to detect that subtle bite. So I like to have good backbone with a softer tip on all of my presentations. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, if somebody's looking to get a, an ice fishing rod, now you can buy combos that have reels on them, but if people just want to get out and try ice fishing, I want to go through kind of what it costs to get started. Now, as far as rods and reels, if you have some summer rods and reels, you can take your reels off of your summer rods, and even if the line isn't right, you don't need to put 200 yards of line on. You can put 50 yards of line over what's already on your reel and then buy an ice fishing rod. So what kind of prices are we looking at to get into an ice fishing rod? It varies greatly, but the one nice thing about ice fishing is that the majority of your equipment is going to be a lot less expensive to get you into something that's very decent. So as far as a combo is concerned, I like to get up into that $30 range about my minimum price point. Uh, that gets you into a reel that's very reasonable with a decent drag system and an infinite anti-reverse, so it doesn't have any uh, kickback on the reel handle. But then it gives you a rod that has all these actions and characteristics that we're talking about here. Uh, as far as rods are concerned just themselves, you can get into something for as inexpensive as about $20. But if you're really looking to get into a good sensitive rod that is not only combining uh, graphite and fiberglass together, you're not just getting, getting a fiberglass rod, uh, getting into that, that 40 or $50 range is good. But as I mentioned with the, the componentry of that, many ice rods in the less expensive categories are fiberglass because it, fiberglass tends to be stronger in the colder temperatures. So graphite can become brittle, but some of these other manufacturers, Berkeley's doing it, uh, Fenwick, St. Croix, they're all incorporating graphite into a fiberglass blank to increase that sensitivity in those rods that you're getting up to that $50 price point. Yeah, and so you can get started fairly inexpensively. Now, obviously, I need a way to stay, make a hole and be safe. What about um, uh, spud bars? We always talk about the number one safety tool is a spud bar. What is a good spud bar going to cost me? So you can get an, an economy spud bar for about $25, but the biggest problem is they're not heavy enough. You can't strike the ice with enough confidence to feel safe as you're moving along. So getting into that $50 range gets a good, stout, heavy spud bar, that I feel more confident with. And a lot of times, especially on early ice, you can make your fishing hole with that spud bar. You can actually take a rod, a reel, a few lures, and a spud bar, and you can go ice fish, right? Absolutely, you can, and, and even clear out some other holes, especially in popular locations like Antonio, as we get to Chatfield out in the North Boat Ramp area. You can clear out holes with that spud bar easily and have confidence as you're moving around. Yeah. Now, what if I want something to make a hole? I'm going to get into it. 
Uh, a lot of times on the front range, I don't take out more than a six-inch hand auger because if I, as long as I have sharp blades, and that's the key, and I usually buy replacement blades. I don't try to sharpen them. It's almost impossible for an individual to get the right concave angle on those blades, oh, yeah. and then they don't cut, they don't cut at all. It's just don't try to sharpen them. Either send them in or buy buy new blades. It's the best way. But a six-inch hand auger with sharp blades, I mean, I can cut a dozen holes in just a few minutes, especially on the front range, if you're a foot or less of ice. Absolutely. And a hand auger like that runs 50 to 60 bucks. There is a difference, as you mentioned, with different blades. I personally prefer some of the Swedish augers a little bit more than some of the Chinese-made ones. The blades tend to stay sharper and be sharper in general right off the bat a little bit better. And then there's other things that you can add to them as well for a pretty inexpensive price point uh, being a drill attachment. For another 20 bucks, you can slap on a, a little top piece that you can then put an 18 or 20-volt drill on and, and have a, a little mini power auger that works great on front-range ice as well. Now, what if I know I'm going to get into it and I want to drill a bunch of holes? Um, you know, you're going to get to an 8- or a 10-inch power auger. You're going to go after bigger fish. Personally, I very seldom go bigger than 8-inch. I've never caught a fish in Colorado. I couldn't get through an 8-inch hole in the ice. Not that it isn't potential, but it's just an 8-inch auger drills so much faster and so much Definitely. easier than a 10-inch, and I like fishing out of the little smaller hole. So what am I looking at, both you know, from gas, electric, what am I looking at for a 10-inch power auger? So gas is going to be your more... Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, gas is going to be your more economical way to go right off the bat. So about $300 can get into a very high-quality gas auger from a company like Eskimo. Now, there's many different options as you bump up from there on gas augers that get you into more powerful augers, but that 33cc $300 auger is very good. Uh, but there's a huge trend towards electric augers right now, particularly people that don't have an open-bed pickup truck that don't want to mess with gas. Um, there's various ion options that uh, is going to be an Eskimo product as well. And ion augers are in that low $500 range. And then StrikeMaster has gone completely away from gas augers, and they're only creating electric now. And those electric augers are in the mid $500 range. Uh, but those electric augers are really starting to prove themselves. And I think that they're really going to be the way of the future as we move, uh, you know, another five or ten years uh, into the game. All right, and we got about a minute left. If I want to get into some baits for ice fishing, um, if, if, give me half a dozen baits. Keep me under twenty-five bucks. What can I buy? Rat finkies are going to be really high on my list. Various tungsten jigs that are going to go along with those um, are very good. I like Kender's jigs, but some of the new VMC fly jigs are very good. I like to add a spoon or two to create some flash. So a slender spoon or a cast master are both going to be good. And then I definitely can't look away from tube jigs. Traps tube jigs in a couple different sizes, maybe some more natural colors, along with some pink and orange are going to be in my box. And then some of the new Euro nymph flies. Um, you could look at Umqua, Rio, Solitude. There's great different patterns. Uh, and those, those little jig flies are a great option, too. All right, my friend, we are out of time. Uh, if people want to get more information from you, where do they find you? I'm at Discount Fishing Tackle. We're six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. All right. Uh, you have a good Christmas if I don't talk to you ahead of time. Thank you so much, Terry. You as well, and I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Austin Parr, always a great resource. We're going to take a timeout. We come back. Chad Lachance is going to join us. We're going to talk cooking, fish, and game. Maybe you just harvested some, or maybe you had some kick around in the freezer for a while. Chad's going to tell you how to all, make them all taste good on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Just like the ones I used to know. 
You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. I want to go right to the phones because I want to spend some time with this gentleman. You know him well. He's been on here many, many times. Good morning, Chad Lachance. Hey, good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for coming on. That was a long break, but we still got plenty of time. So I want to, you know, everybody knows you're an avid angler, an accomplished fisherman and hunter, but I don't know if they know how much of an accomplished chef you are. You and I have had the privilege of cooking for each other a few times, and, you know, we're both kind of foodies. And this time of the year, you're getting fresh game and maybe some new fish and maybe waterfowl, but you also have some of that stuff that's been kicking in the freezer for a while. So you're going to kind of tell us how to maybe amp that stuff up a little. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit all of the above, you know, because in my opinion, the, the the food value is really the most important thing at the end of the day. If you're if I'm going to harvest fish or game, you know, and so there are some nuances to it. In a lot of cases, it's not going to be like dealing with grocery store food, and and so I feel like that uh, you know so it's a, it's a worthy topic this time of year because of the timing of of it being the end of the fall season, the harvest season, and all that. So couple things about about handling fishing game in the field first and then we'll talk about some stuff in the kitchen but first of all i need to go out if i'm going to harvest fish or game i I would prefer particularly fish to be fresh if at all possible when i'm going to eat it unfortunately that's not always realistic we're going to have to freeze some of it uh but i keep that in mind when i go into the field particularly with fish if i'm going to harvest them i want to be prepared uh, to to do so otherwise um if I just happen to get lucky and catch the wrong fish and I'm not deal, you know, ready to deal with them, I might not end up with the best food value out of it. So it starts with the fish. So if, if at all possible, I want to keep them alive and in cold water. So the reason that's important uh, is that the, 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 the process of, of making fish not so good happens immediately from the time it's stressed particularly from the time it, it dies and then all the way down through the, the system. So if I can keep them alive and cool in a live well like I would do in your boat or my boat, that's my best option. But that is not usually an option uh, or not always an option for people. The next one I see a lot of is on a stringer. Um, stringer's fine if the water's cold, but you take a stocker trout, you put them on a stringer in a 65-degree reservoir and put them next to you on the side of the lake all day, that's not going to be a very tasty fish by the time it's done. So in that scenario, I'd rather go ahead and remove the gills from the fish and put them immediately on ice. So if I'm going somewhere thinking I might harvest, you know, some some trout, let's say, or some walleyes, and I can't keep them alive comfortably, I'm going to immediately get that fish iced as soon as possible. And I'm also going to pull the gills out. And the reason being is that will allow the fish to bleed out and will make for a clean fillet job and just very clean and tasty fillets as well. So that's what I always try to accomplish with, with fish. If I'm going to be able to keep it alive, then before the, the harvest, obviously before it can be filleted, uh, the fish has to be dispatched. And in that case, I will cut all of the gills out of the fish immediately, let the fish bleed out, and then fillet it immediately. And that will, again, make for very tasty fillets. And I'll quickly point out that there's fillet videos for walleyes, trout, and a couple other species on the Fishful Thinker YouTube channel if people aren't familiar with actually filleting their fish. Um, when it comes to game, particularly small game, I will typically clean that game as soon as I get to back to my truck. So if I'm going to go, say, walk a field for pheasants, and I'm lucky enough to shoot a pheasant, as soon as I get back to the truck, I will pull the entrails out of that pheasant. I may not pluck the whole thing or pull the breasts out, but I will for sure pull the entrails out of the pheasant immediately. And that will, again, lead to my freshest tasting, best overall flavor of my game. Same thing with a rabbit or a squirrel 
or anything like that. Uh, I want to get all the intros out as fast as possible. Uh, it goes without saying with big game, that's the most important thing. Uh, I don't care how big of a bull elk you shot or whatever the scenario is, get your pictures quickly, but get that thing opened up and get the intros out of it as soon as possible, because that's going to remove the chance of a variety of different um, contaminants. For one, it's going to also let the heat out of the animal immediately. And similar with icing a fish, the colder you can get it, the sooner you can get it cold, the better off you are. So I always want to get the game opened up immediately, uh, if at all possible, which is I think the most important thing to make a really, really good venison or really any other game is to get the meat clean and cool as fast as you can from the time the animal was healthy. And those are the first things from the field. The other thing is a couple of quick tips. Never get your venison wet, your game wet if you can avoid it and let it sit. So in other words, I don't want to rinse a carcass. I don't want to wipe it out with snow or anything like that if I can avoid it. I know processors that will not take game in if it, if it has show signs of having been wet because there's a lot of membranes that will hold moisture and lead a bacterial breeding ground. So try to keep your venison dry as possible. If it's extremely cold out, uh, you might get away with leaving the hide on it. But otherwise, you need to get the hide off. Those That hair is extremely insulative, as you know. And you may think, well, I opened it, the, the cavity up and it's cooling from the inside. It might be, but those hams and those shoulders will still be hot underneath all that hair six hours later when you get home if you haven't peeled the, the skin off it. So there's a little bit of meat protection that goes with the skin, but in my opinion, that is offset immediately by the fact that that meat stays warm too long for its own good. So I want to get it cool, clean, as fast as possible. Dry rags for wiping it out if I need to. That's my number one thing for getting from the field to the house. Um, once I'm at the house, you mentioned some stuff in the freezer. There's, let's say I went to Kansas and I got a bunch of crappies or something and I've got them in the freezer. They've got a little freezer burn on them. A lot of people don't want to eat that. They've got venison left from last year. And, oh, it's freezer burned. I'm not going to eat it. Well, freezer burn is just a moisture loss. It does not affect the food value of the meat other than it's lost moisture and it will change the texture slightly. So anything that is freezer burned for me goes immediately into a liquid for cooking. So, for instance, if I've got a bunch of venison that was left from last year's harvest and I didn't package it really well and I got lucky and I shot another one this year, I'm going to be a good hunter. I'm going to eat my, the end of my stuff from last year. I will take any venison that's got freezer burn on it, and it will go into something like a stew or um, – some sort of a liquid-based dish, a soup, uh, a, a sort of a, a broth thing of some kind, something like that. Something's going to cook it in liquid. A long, slow braise of some sort uh, would be a better choice for it than, say, disposing of it or anything else. If I, let's say I've got some steaks that were originally going to be steaks and they're freezer burned, I'll just cube them down and, and or maybe even run them through the grinder and turn them into hamburger, or I'll cube them down and turn them into stew meat. So my original plan for that loin might have been to make steaks with it, but it, now it's freezer burned. It won't be very good if I just throw it on a hot cast iron skillet. Uh, so I'll go ahead and stew it, and then it will be absolutely fine. You will lose no – you will not know. I, I do it all the time. You would have no idea that the freezer burned meat was in a stew uh, if, if you do something like a stew or a soup or a pot pie or grind it into taco meat or lasagna or, you know, tiny sausage, anything like that. So that's a key thing. Same thing with fish. I might have a beautiful walleye fillet, but I didn't package it right. It got a little freezer burn on it. That thing is now, rather than just going to be a perfect walleye fillet that I'm going to be very delicate with, 
now I'm going to bury that thing in a fish chowder, and it's going to taste absolutely delicious, and you'll never know that it was with maybe freezer burn or uh, you know anything like that. So I don't recommend getting rid of it. I, I just was contacted by a guy. I wanted to know if I knew somebody that had dogs who would take his venison left over from last year. He was going to feed it to the dogs. And I had to have a discussion with that gentleman about the fact that that food value is absolutely fine unless that food was wrecked in the in the field or something like that that we're, we're not aware of. So I just don't recommend wasting of game meat because it's a little bit frostbitten, and that's that's the key to it. A couple other quick things with venison. Let's say my venison's perfect. I had a good hunting season like I did this year. Got very lucky, shot a couple of deer, shot an antelope. Um, typically, venison is best with a with all the fat removed, no fat at all left on that venison when, when it's processed. Let's say you took it to a processor or you did it yourself. No fat can be left on that deer or it will be – that's where the gaminess comes from that people always talk about is the fat itself. And I'm not talking about connective tissue. I'm not talking about tendons and, and silver skin. I'm literally talking about body fat, and, and you will know the difference when you look at it. If you've got a bunch of connective tissue in it, low and slow with moisture. So, in other words, a stew, a braise, uh, a pot roast, something like that. Uh, if I'm going to do something like a steak, then I need the silver skin and everything off of it because unless you cook it low and slow, that silver skin will just shrivel up and make it very, very tough and hard to chew. Whereas if I braise it liquid for three hours, now it's going to make this very yummy, unctuous, mouthfeel, delicious venison because that silver skin will release its, its collagen into the stew and make it taste really good. But it takes a long, slow period of cooking for that to happen, and hot and fast will not do it. So... Big thing, get all the fat off immediately and uh, before you do any cooking and then consider my cuts from there as to how I'm going to cook them uh, for sure. So uh, also, since I have no fat, let's say I need some kind of, I mean, everyone knows a pot roast or a stew or something like that is always better with some sort of fat in it. You need that that flavor that comes from fat. So if it's going to be something like a stew, I will add back typically a couple of beef bones and you can get those at your grocery store. You can get them at a butcher or whatever. Uh, a couple of beef bones, just the bones will add a flavor, some bone marrow, um, typically some fat and connective tissue as well uh, will help a lot. So you put a beef bone in a stew pot with a bunch of venison that has no fat in it. And all of a sudden that stew pot tastes really good. And it has to do with the fact that you put all of that stuff from the beef in there. If I'm going to grind it, then I'll typically grind it with either pork fat or beef fat if I need fat in it for something. Uh, that's a good trick as well, and that will help you out to uh, put a little flavor and also make it stick together better. If I want to do a patty or a meatloaf or meatballs, I'm doing a big giant batch of meatballs this afternoon. Uh, we'll be grinding venison uh, lean, real lean, extremely lean venison in with a bunch of pork that's about a 50-50 fat and pork content and I will grind that down and make meatballs and those will be really tasty but if I try to make a meatball with pure venison it's going to be tough, it's not going to stick together and it's not going to have the best flavor of anything that you know that I could I could generate by adding a little pork fat everybody knows pork fat tastes good Chad, we are out of, out of time you can use a little bacon as well we are out of time, but great tips. I think we should cover this again soon and maybe get into some actual recipes and stuff. But if people want more information, real quick, where do they find you? Fishful Thinker across the board. There's a bunch of videos of cooking and prep on our YouTube channel at Fishful Thinker, also on Facebook at Fishful Thinker and Instagram, and uh, all week long on TV and Altitude and World Fishing Network. All right, my friend, we will talk to you again very soon. 
Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You bet. That was Chad Lachance. You've been listening to a special Sunday edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Normally catch us 9 to 11 on Saturday mornings. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Go at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Go to our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Join us next week. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in football on 104.3 The Fan.